0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 and 22 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, Grace DC, Pastor Glenn here. I'm glad to be gathered with you again, even if it's virtually as we study together the Gospel of Mark. Uh, God is not hindered at all in his ability to work in my life, work in your life, even though we're over video here. And uh, we can be assured that he is eager to teach each one of us. And it may be that you're looking into following Jesus for the first time, or you have been a long time follower of Jesus. Each week, uh, there's something new for us. And I'm excited about this passage, what I learned from it, what I hope you'll learn from. Now, often we learn about ourselves by observing others interacting. So for instance, maybe you're watching the way a brother and sister interact, and it makes you think about your own relationship with your brother or sister, or the way a husband and wife interact. In this part of Mark, uh, Mark details three different groups as they interact with Jesus. The crowds, the religious leaders, and then what we'll call close associates of Jesus. And as Mark sandwiches these accounts together, and this is a literary technique he likes to do, he highlights the way that both insiders and outsiders interact with Jesus. And relate to Jesus but ultimately how they relate to God because the Christian faith understands how you relate to Jesus is how you relate to God now modern people tend to believe that we can relate to God however we want however we choose but in reality we also know that uh, that doesn't too doesn't feel too good on the other side does it uh, maybe you 've had the experience where uh, you meet someone new, and you can tell pretty soon into the conversation that they presume that you share their political beliefs or their religious beliefs and at some point you have to say actually i, I don 't really think that way, believe that way it doesn 't too feel feel too good that they made that assumption. Well, how much more so, the God of heaven and earth so when we come to him we have to do our best to be open to his revealing himself to us and how we are to relate to Jesus should be contrasted with the way that the crowds do and the religious leaders and even his close associates and uh, in three different ways Uh, one learning not using second of all yielding, not preserving. And thirdly, relating to God, communing, not controlling. So let's look at those three things together. First of all, as we relate to God, learning but not using Jesus. Now, as a candidate's popularity rises, oftentimes their opponent will respond by running negative ads. Well, the religious leaders have been trying to do that with respect to Jesus, but either way, his popularity just keeps rising. I mean, it's spreading to the north, it's spreading to the east, even 120 miles to the south, which is no small distance in that day and time, right? But but despite their efforts, they can't really uh, get a leg up on him in terms of his popularity and why is he popular? Well, we're told it was what Jesus was doing What Jesus was doing was why the crowds were drawn to him. That is the deeds that Jesus performed. Unlike the religious leaders uh, who looked at the crowds really as an object for their own advancement or an object of their um, own um, flattery, Jesus looked at them as a flock that was harassed and needy and wounded he is the good shepherd that finds the flock torn up and hungry and deprived and he's filled with compassion and the crowd is drawn to that compassion just like a thirsty person would be to water maybe uh, that's what drew you to jesus his compassion and we got a glimpse of it last week uh in the healing of the apostle peter's mother-in-law But in that, we also read this. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Look at that picture. I mean, first of all, after a long, tiring day of ministry, Jesus has just healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and she immediately gets up and begins to serve. But then, knock, knock, knock at the door, A huge crowd from the city is there with all their needs. And Jesus then goes on to heal people and address those needs late into the night. This is the compassion of Jesus. Sometimes um, we use, or maybe you have in your phone, this little uh, screen time indicator, right? Tells you how long you've been on the phone, how much time you spent here or there. And if there was something comparable to that, where uh, they could measure the deed time of Jesus versus the religious leaders, it would be like 126 hours to zero. The religious leaders spent a lot of time, as Pastor Russ pointed out last week, uh, debating and uh, basically talking and squabbling where Jesus is doing good. But as much as Jesus loved to do good, and he did, he loved to teach good. By that, what I mean is he loved to teach the people. And here we uh, follow him down to the sea. He and his disciples go. Maybe they were trying to get some time alone, but the crowds again follow them, and they're near crushing Jesus. They want to be so near him. Uh, some of you have heard me share the story of when I was in college, I had the uh, privilege to see a uh, prince, Purple Rain Tour. And actually, I was in the second row. Amazing seats. But when he came up on stage, this crowd pushed forward. And it was the only time in my life I thought, I'm going to get crushed to death. It was a scary feeling. Fans can want to be so near you know, the the artist they love, that they can actually crush the artist if they get up on stage. Well, these folks want to be next to Jesus. So Jesus tells the disciples, grab a boat and let's move it out into the water. But it wasn't just crowd security. Jesus wasn't just saying, keep them away from me. He wanted to teach them. We see this is often um, a way that Jesus liked to teach to have the crowd sit down on the shore. And he would spend hours just feeding them with the word of God. Uh, Those of you at Grace Downtown have heard me often say that words without deeds are powerless, right? If we have no Christian deeds, no Jesus deeds, along with our words, the words are hypocritical and powerless, but the same way deeds without words are meaningless. For us just to do deeds, but never share the word of the gospel, Uh, does very little uh, long-term benefit for people. This is when Jesus, why Jesus often did deeds, and then immediately he would follow it up with teaching. We saw this last week when Jesus heals the hand, the withered hand of a man in the synagogue, but then he goes on to teach about the Sabbath and who is the Lord of the Sabbath. So And he does the same thing when he feeds uh, 5,000 people. He tells them that he's the bread of life. He does the same thing when he um, heals a blind man's sight, saying that he's the light of the world. But it's when he begins to teach that the crowds thin out. And it wasn't because he was a bad teacher. We know elsewhere in the scripture his teaching was amazing and authoritative. Why was it then? And you can imagine the scenario here. Uh, Imagine a family brings um, an ailing uncle to Jesus, someone that had been uh, disabled, perhaps, or had a disease, and Jesus heals the man, and the family's just weeping, and they're rejoicing, and then the disciples come off and just gently shoo them off to the side and say, hey, listen, hang around for the teaching, okay? And so, you know, when the teaching starts, they they sit there and then one person yawns and they give each other a look and say, you know, let's tell them uh, we got to get back for a babysitter or something like that. Right. But uh, just to uh, to get out of the situation, why would they do that? Why would they leave? Because they believe their problem had been fixed by their circumstance being fixed. Well, don't get me wrong living with two people that suffer with chronic illness, it is not a small thing when any healing comes. Praise God for that. Yet at the same time, the Bible says that suffering is supposed to do deep work in our soul. And so as these folks just take the healing or deliverance and leave, it evidences a shallow soul. It evidences a life that hasn't really responded to that suffering in faith. We oftentimes uh, use the phrase teachable moments. When a child uh, maybe experiences a failure or a disappointment or a success or a hardship, we want to uh, give them some commentary, some teaching with it. Why? Because they we want them to be a person of um, substance, a person that has spiritual depth to them. Jesus wanted to offer those teaching moments, but the crowd wanted healing more than they wanted saving. They wanted emotional and spiritual deliverance from oppression more than they wanted the freedom to be in relationship with Jesus and follow Jesus. Recently, I have had the joy of reconnecting with a college friend of mine and we had not been in contact for 32 years and i had tried off and on to 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 get in touch with him um and to try to uh see how he was doing and um and i'm you know i've shared part of this uh story as it develops and um we when we talked in the first conversation that we had together, we were kind of catching up on each other's lives, and he had asked me, uh, Well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And there was that kind of, oh, oh, really? Well, that's cool. But you know, you're always kind of waiting for that awkwardness when you're a pastor, how people are going to respond. Well, it turns out he began to uh, share uh, a bit of his story with me. Where he said, uh, you know, when you knew me way back when, even though I had had some experience with the Christian faith growing up in my home, I, you know, I ran as far as I away as I could, and really through the years was just going down many different um, paths—Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, many things—and no belief or this belief or that belief. And um, over that time, I uh, married a wonderful woman, and I have two sons that I just love. But about eight years ago, um, I came to the end of myself. Uh, there were just a convergence of trials. And I began to look again at the things that I had studied and believed. And he said, the only thing that offered anything to me was Jesus. And at that point, I was just sort of shocked. I was like, wow, okay. You know, He had uh, come to know Christ in a personal and saving way. But since that time, which is often the case after people become Christians, uh, trials were introduced to in his life because God wants to refine us. He takes interest in making us after the moral beauty of his son. And some of these trials are very severe, uh, so severe that they took his father's life prematurely. And so... uh, we were talking about that and also uh, me committing to praying for him and longing for his healing but he said you know what i really long uh, i i spent so many years 45 years just living for myself and now that i know jesus I-, I want more years to serve him i want more years to be an influencer for him That's the sort of uh, deep soul work, the teaching moment that Jesus means to do when someone's in the need of healing or deliverance. Jesus loved to do good deeds, but he longed to teach people. And when Jesus is teaching you, He's doing the greatest good to you. He's doing the best good to you. So I wanna ask you a question. Uh, Do you long to be taught by the Lord as much as you long to be healed or delivered? Do you long to receive the teaching of Jesus as much as you long for him to fix your life? Now, there's a second reaction we get, and this time uh, it's another outsider. We could say the crowds were the outsider, and this is the religious leader. And here, the lesson is yielding to not preserving. Now, last week, Pastor Russ did a phenomenal job describing for us the mindset of the religious leaders and the way sin had warped their view of righteousness and purity and their own calling and how uh, jesus threatened that and they wanted to preserve it but there's another thing that the religious leaders wanted to preserve and that was their social supremacy just a few chapters up mark talks about this or rather mark records jesus jesus says beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus describes the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, he, 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 he lets them know I, I see what you're doing. They love to be the center of attention, they loved the recognition of their position, they loved the perks, they loved the ease by which they could move in society, they loved the preeminence, they loved the honor, they loved the deference they received. In short, they they relished and clung to their social power. It's only been in recent years, uh, as I've observed and heard the experiences or paid more attention to the experiences of uh, women I know that are dear women in my life, uh, or friends of color, that I've come to get a glimpse into uh, the social power that I've enjoyed being a white middle-aged male. You know, there's just been a certain ease that I've been able to have in my life, uh, right? A certain expectation, it's been a certain power that, I, that I've put false confidence in, in my life. Now for you, it may be different. It may be that you enjoyed, you've enjoyed a social power in a friendship circle or in your family, but someone new has entered it. Maybe someone's married into the mix or just a new friend and they're threatening that social power for you, and it makes you very nervous. It makes you act in ways that you're not proud of, or it may be even the church, right? May, maybe it is. There was a certain social power uh, that you and those like you enjoyed in the church. Meaning, you know, I, I liked it when we all used to like the same songs, and we all, um, you know, like the same topics of teaching and preaching or programs. Well, the social power of the religious leaders is slipping away. Jesus is popularity rising. They're losing their fan base. They're losing their party base. And so they go on the attack, going as far as saying that all the healing and deliverance Jesus is doing is actually been done by the hand of the devil. He mentions Beelzebub. And uh, that that we think, there's, uh, there's not a lot of resource to go from, but it may be a variation on uh, the God of Baal, which appears in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus immediately just uh, exposes the absurdity of that, saying, how can the power of the devil be disarming the devil himself? For those of you that are Harry Potter fans, uh, y- you might know that uh, Lord Voldemort Right? The Dark Lord uh, has divided his soul into what are called horror crux, so he can continue to live. And uh, what happens whenever Harry and the gang destroys a horror crux, horror crux, and it could be an, an inanimate object, like a necklace, or it could be uh, like that snake, that snake that is just a, a bad snake. Um, but when they kill these things... Part of Voldemort dies. Well, as Jesus is dethroning these demons and casting out demons, it's weakening Satan. So he says, "This is absurd that you would say that the two could actually be, you know, uh, working at the same time." And Jesus says that this is him uh, binding the strong man. Uh, he he's, does this picture of uh, tying up of a man, a man that's strong and plundering his house. And Jesus here is the strongest man, right? His ability to bind uh, this dark one. And he offers this solemn warning to the religious leaders where he says to them, you're very close to crossing a line here. Uh, And what he would say, committing an eternal or unforgivable sin. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, first, let me say this. This is not a sin that you can commit by mistake. It's not a sin that you commit because you've had some wild thought. It's not a sin that you could commit even by cursing God. In fact, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that words against him will be forgiven, even blasphemies against him. And we shouldn't let the grace of this get lost on us either. It's amazing. Jesus says all sins will be forgiven. Even sins against him. How how gracious is God? How amazing is God? <laughs> Think about all the terrible sins of the world. And Jesus says all those sins can be forgiven. The one sin he's talking about, though, is the sin of attributing to um, the devil the Holy Spirit's work. Or saying, really, um, what the Holy Spirit is doing, the good that he's doing. It's calling good evil, right? But this is... This isn't just a one-off thing. Just to be clear, you know, this is a sin that is um, knowingly, knowingly, intentionally, decidedly, uh, deceptively, continually attributing the work of the devil to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he warns them about. He doesn't condemn them. He just warns them about what they're doing. In short, you've heard this before, if you're worried about committing that sin, you haven't committed it, okay? But how do we avoid the deeper temptation? Because that is relevant to us, right? Where someone so is, they they were so desperate to cling to their social power, it even led them that far. Well, the scripture tells us that you and I, We have been made for such high social affirmation, such high social security, uh, such high uh, social um, favor and honor that only God can fulfill that. Only knowing God. And here we get a connection between this theme of power and the gospel. How does Jesus act as the strong man? How does he bind the strong man? Uh, Rather, how does Jesus act as the stronger man? How does he bind the strong man? Well, the devil is an accuser, a liar, a thief, a murderer. And so Jesus enters in as the strong man, and the way he does it, is by his own death and resurrection. It's through the death that he gives, the death that he dies, that he disarms uh, the murderer of his power. And it's by his rising to life that he then frees you and I from that power. He shuts the mouth of the accuser by one laying down his life to take our true guilt upon himself the accusations that we really deserve, but also you know, shutting out the false accusations that we deal with. Jesus comes against the accuser by silencing his mouth. Jesus also delivers us from the temptations that would steal our lives, the temptations that would murder our soul, which would murder the image of God in us. Jesus then delivers us into the relationship with the greatest fan base you could ever have, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're told that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God himself, through Christ, crowns us with steadfast love and honor. He calls us beloved. He gives us the full rights of sons and daughters. What I'm saying is this. Through the gospel and through Jesus Christ, You achieve a social power and a social status which is unthinkable in this life. And it's only when you and I are leaning and believing on that that we can begin to release the social power that we cling to and ultimately would lead us down paths that are dark and sinful. Yielding this power, yielding the power of our heart to the gospel's power, We no longer need numbers on our side. We no longer need the place of social supremacy. But lastly, we see this in the group of the insiders and that is relating to God by communing, not controlling or imposing. Um, Here I say insiders because the Greek isn't quite easy to understand. Uh, it it probably best means close associates. Now that could be the disciples, that could be the family members that are mentioned, it could be a combination of both. But either way, these are people that uh, believed that they had a certain uh, right to the presence and access of Jesus. But more so they believed that they had a certain authority over the ministry and teaching of Jesus. And we see it in two examples. Uh one, there's a large crowd that's gathered and uh in at the house where Jesus is, and they're not even able to eat because there's so many people there. And it says that uh these insiders come and they seek to seize Jesus. Uh they, they believe he's out of his mind. You know, the picture here is just like you might have someone who's mentally unstable and people have to restrain them. That's that's how they're approaching Jesus. The second one that talks about his mothers and brothers who at this point are skeptical of Jesus. They haven't yet embraced Jesus. And they, they interrupt his teaching by then saying, uh, tell him to come here, come to us. So in that, you, know, you see a certain sort of presumption that they can uh, relate to Jesus how they would like. I was thinking back to an experience I had earlier on in my ministry where I was asked to uh, uh, do the wedding ceremony of a woman in our ministry who was just dear to us. And her relationship with her family was tough, especially with her father, and it had gotten tougher since she had become a Christian. She came from a nominal religious background. And I remember having the conversation uh, with the father on the phone, and he already didn't like me because of uh, my relationship to her through the ministry and uh so it was a tense phone call and at one point he was uh, basically saying this is how the service is going to go this is how it's going to unfold and then he referred to his minister as my man he said uh we'll come to this point and my man's going to do this and i thought wow that's an interesting term isn't it he obviously felt because he was a founder of the church a long time member he had given money that he had a certain right of influence right well all of us can see jesus as my man in that sense right maybe it's because you've been a christian for a long time or maybe because um you know you've grown up in the church maybe it's because your particular denomination you believe is the most jesus-like The most theological could be because you went to seminary like I did, or your moral beliefs reflect Jesus's belief. However it is, all of us have this tendency, especially insiders to believe that um, we need to manage Jesus. We need to manage his message. We need to control things. And it can happen in subtle ways. Let me mention a few. One is editing Jesus. Those that were his close associates Uh, didn't like what he was saying. It was upsetting them. It made them feel uncomfortable. And so they wanted him to stop teaching. Now, one of the ways uh, I've seen this played out is the tendency we have to use Jesus against the Bible. That is, you might come uh, come upon some passages that you find are uncomfortable, that are offensive, And so the response people will give is, well, Jesus never taught on that. As if Jesus didn't uphold the authority of the entirety of Scripture, which he does. He upholds the Old Testament in Matthew 5. He sends his Holy Spirit upon the writers of Scripture. In short, if the Bible is inspired by God, which it is, that means it was also inspired by the Son of God. In every word, has Jesus' backing. We have, we, we, there's no need to edit him. Second of all, there might be a tendency to seize Jesus. Now, we can't physically do that, thankfully. But what we find is the tendency, perhaps, uh, to make Jesus the mascot of our movement. It might be our um, theological movement, our ministry movement, It might be our political movement, whatever it would be. But there's this desire to take Jesus and move him to uh, be the Lord of our will, the Lord of our agenda, the Lord of what we want to accomplish. And of course, uh, Jesus doesn't move that direction. Uh, He isn't called to follow us. We're called to follow him. And lastly, a third way that we can fall into this tendency toward control is to seek to weaken Jesus's words. Uh, as those close associates heard him, they, they, they responded by saying, listen, you're going too far. Your words are too radical. You're out of your mind. And so they wanted to blunt the, the radical nature of Jesus's words. They wanted to blunt the point, uh, the prophetic point of his, war, uh, of his word, of the sword of scripture. And when we do that, we actually do ourselves such a disservice. You know, a surgical uh, knife that is blunt can't help at all. But oftentimes it's the scripture as it's pointed, pierces our hearts, and then we find the word of grace to heal us. Now, Jesus understands these tendencies toward control are nothing short of a contest of wills. He uh, contrasts the will of those who sit and uh, do his will, what he, who he calls his mothers and brothers and sisters, and those that seek to uh, have him do their will. But instead, uh, Jesus calls us to something far better than control, and that is communing with him. It's impossible to both uh, commune, to be humble and teachable, and also to control. They're mutually exclusive. And so if you and I want to guard ourselves from falling into this tendency to control Jesus as if we could, we need to sit at his feet. We need to sit at his feet every day. Every day we need to be taught by Jesus. Every day we need to hear his uh, priestly words. Every day we need to worship him at his feet. Every day we need to lay our wills at his feet and when we do we will find that control no longer satisfies us because we've tasted something far better more so we've come to trust in the captain of our salvation and we will follow him wherever he leads us let's pray God gives us that grace would you pray with me thank you father for sending your son Jesus Thank you that he is um, the light and the way and the truth. Thank you that he doesn't just call us, but he leads us. Please give us your spirit that we might follow him in Christ's name. Amen.